Welcome everyone. Welcome back to the Newcomer Investor channel where we talk about stocks, share insights and debate. Today is a truly incredible day because we have a legendary guest in the house. This is someone whose YouTube I've been watching since before I started this podcast. Uh, I'm a big fan. So big welcome to Mike at The Dividend Guy. Mike, thank you for being here today. Uh, I know most of my listeners probably already know you, but for the purpose of this episode, we'll start on a blank slate. So please introduce yourself to our listeners. Who is The Dividend Guy? Oh, first, I just want to thank you. I mean, legendary. That's pretty cool. Uh, some people on, on, on Twitter always called me like the Oracle of Granby because I'm from Quebec. But that was also like some kind of like a, a, a nice comment. Um, so, yeah. So I'm a passionate investor. Started investing in 2003. And the way it worked is I just finished my bachelor degree in finance, got a job over there and just started trading like, like this, just to have fun. And eventually I became a financial planner because I was really interested into finance and helping others understanding their finance. So I started a blog on the side, got my CFP designation, started to work at a bank. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that yes. bank later on today. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I worked for like 13 years at National Bank, eventually became a private banker. So like just dealing with bigger numbers for bigger clients, but always having a lot of fun. But the thing is, at that time, before I left my job, is all my clients were business owners, like with large businesses. And every single meeting, I had that feeling that I was not on the right side of the desk. I should have been at their place. I wanted to grow my business. But at the same time, I had a pretty good job at the bank. I was enjoying what I was doing. I had like a lot of fun. I was good. So that was all great. But then I thought, yeah, I really want to launch my business and do that full time. So back then, 2013, I created Dividend Stocks Rock, which is a paid membership for dividend investors. Obviously, uh, we help them to invest with more conviction so they can stick to their plan and enjoy their retirement. But that was a sideline back then. And it grew a little bit, but not that much because, I mean, you know, if you spend like 15, 20 hours a week on that, plus having a day job, having three kids at one point, it's it's just okay, but it's not incredible. But then 2016 happened and my wife at that time ran a daycare at home and, you know, like huge respect for everybody's working in a daycare because it's just like crazy hours kids are screaming and running all the time. And it's like, it's a devotion. It's just not just a job. It's like mad respect for them. But then my wife was just like, yeah, I'm tired of this. And then I read on a blog, a family of five like us, they went on a bike trip. They they quit everything and they just decided to travel North America on a bicycle. And I thought the idea is very interesting, but no way I'm going to injure my three kids <laughs> riding their bicycle. That, that for me, it was not a good, <laughs> a good idea. So we decided instead, because we explored a few um, scenarios where like we do backpacking and then we eventually thought, you know what, our, um, our youngest son at that time was four. So buying a small RV and traveling in an RV sound like a better option. So I decided to take a sabbatical year from the bank and my wife closed her, uh, her daycare. We rented the house and we jumped on the RV for the first time of our lives, never been RVing ever, and started driving across North America, then Central America. We lived in Costa Rica for three months. 
And then we came back uh, and during that time, I kind of realized that, you know, life is very short and we keep saying that, but when you really realize that you could die tomorrow morning and what is really important is to achieve your dreams as soon as possible and spend time with people that matters instead of like just running into that rat race, trying to get a promotion or whatever. And then I realized one day, if I'm lucky, I'm going to wake up at 50 or 60 and I will deeply regret not trying to work full time on my online business. So when I came back, decided to quit my job in 2017 and and kind of realized that you know when you cross the border of Honduras which is like one of the deadliest country in the world like your perspective of fear and like losing your house because you don't have a job anymore it's not that important so I decided to quit everything and then started full-time on DSR and and since then it's been six years now that I'm doing this full-time helping more than 3,000 investors uh just love doing that and and here I am today just watching the market every single day and having fun meeting new people like you and just having a lot of fun there <laughs> I love that, man. Honestly, that is such an inspirational story. And I think that's also what I enjoyed about your content when I found you is that a lot of, you know, people in the kind of investing space, it's only about the investing and, you know, getting big returns and doing all this stuff. But there's not much of that human aspect. But I find the human aspect is honestly even more interesting sometimes than, than the actual stock stuff, right? So, yeah, I, I really like, you know, your, your journey. It's super inspirational. And uh, thank you for that great introduction. Now, with Thanks. that said, now that we know a bit about you and your life, I want to jump into your investing. Specifically, let's start off with a little bit about your overarching investing style and strategy. And I guess from your name, Dividend Guy, most people can already have an idea. But uh, let's let's hear a bit about that from you. What is your your strategy overall? It's kind of interesting because a lot of people sometimes they they get on my blog or they listen to the podcast or go to YouTube and they say, well, you're not really the dividend guy because I focus on dividend growth and not on the dividend yield. And that that kind of like upset a lot of investors because when we think about dividend investing, we always think, oh, I'm going to invest a lot of money into high yielding stocks and I'm going to live off those dividends and they kind of see dividends like like magical money being created and then deposited in your account where if you invest at 7% yield you're golden and you can retire on that and you don't have to watch on your portfolio ever again. And I'm completely the opposite where I never look at the dividend yield on a stock that is definitely not even like in my criteria. And it's kind of funny because when it started, I, as I said, I started investing in 2003, but between 2003 and 2010, I was just very active on the market. I was like buying, selling, not really having like a strategy. I was just learning the ropes. And it was like before 2008, it was like very good years. So I was trading on margin. I borrowed like $20,000 from a line of credit. Oh, wow. Started to, yeah, yeah. I was like all in, like two really weeks in it. after I, I got my job at the bank. And and I, because I was underwriting investment loans. And I thought, wow, borrowing to invest sounds like a pretty smart move. Huh. So I, I got I got in the branch, asked for like $20,000 line of credit, told my girlfriend who became my wife. So it's a good story. But told my girlfriend at that time, said, you know what? I'm just going to take like $3,000, like not more than that, just to try, you know? So I bought shares of Power Corporation because there was a partnership between National Bank and Power Corporation. And I was doing investment loans for clients from investors group actually so this is that was like the 
They're very like large research I did and like strong investment thesis was just like proximity of like my work. I should do that. There you go. So didn't know much about investing back then. And then a month later, I had 19,500 withdrawn from the line of credit. And I was like buying and selling like there's no tomorrow. Every two, three weeks, I was very active and it was a lot of fun. But the thing is, uh, and I bought I bought my first house with that cash down. I created like more than $50,000 in profit within three years. So I was very aggressive wow. and it was really working well. But mind you, it was like amazing years. Like between 2003 and 2006, a monkey would have done well on the market. I didn't realize that back then. And then I eventually made mistakes, lost a bunch of money and realized, well, maybe I should like focus on a real strategy. And at a time, I was already blogging uh, in the finance space, as I said, and I was starting also to buy and sell blogs because I realized that I could do that as a sideline. So this is all like my online business started by just buying blogs, selling ads, selling links for Google ranking and so on. And it eventually fell on the Dividend Guy blog uh, in 2010, decided to purchase that. And I was, at that time, I was a brand new uh, financial planner. I had three kids. And, and doing my MBA at the same time. So I thought, you know what? I cannot spend three, four hours per day watching the market and like trading like this. I need to something that will be efficient, but that will like bring some total returns, but not necessarily take me that much time. So I start reading this guy's stuff because I, I I knew I knew the the author for a few years before. And I thought, well, dividend investing sounds like a pretty smart way to grow my portfolio. And he had that, that target to invest in dividend growers, not just dividend payers. But at first, I had like some minimum metrics, including some payout ratios and, and a minimum yield of 3%. But I as I was doing some research, I found companies like Coca-Cola, for example, or Disney that were paying like 2 point something percent and 1% for Disney that I really loved back then. And I thought, well... I need to modify this part of my investing strategy because it doesn't work anymore. And then, because at first I really started as a dividend guy and then I should change my moniker now to dividend growth guy, but that's not, <laughs> that doesn't sound very good anyways. As my strategy evolve, I, I kind of like focus, like my first filter is always the same thing is what I call the dividend triangle. It's like basically just three metrics is five years of revenue growth, five years of earnings growth, and five years of dividend growth. So I just look at the trends, make sure that everything is positive, because when you think about that, if a business continu continuously find ways to grow, regardless if it's like gaining market share because they have a great product or service or they're making acquisition, they're growing their sales every year. And then if that company also find out a way to maintain healthy margin, and they make more profit every year. So they, they will grow their earnings per share year after year. Now, EPS, not always the perfect number because it's based on accounting principles, but over five years, it's pretty hard to play around numbers for that long. So usually you'll see a good trend there. And once you find a business that grows their sales, grows their profit, well, if they grow their distribution to shareholders, well, then you have a sign of confidence from management telling you basically, well, you know what, Mike, we are in a good position and we are confident to pay a dividend this year and a higher dividend next year and so on for years to come. 
So in other words, they're telling you, we're going to continue to thrive. And by definition, if you're buying a thriving business, well, technically the stock price will eventually go back up, right? Um, so that was like the basis of my investing strategy. And obviously after that, you do some a little bit more digging. But whenever I look at a stock for the first time, if it doesn't show a consistent growth over those three metrics on the graphs, so I look more about the trends instead of like just looking at the, about the numbers. But if it doesn't show good trends, it's very rare that I'm going to dig a little bit deeper to see what's the business look like. Love that. That's an amazing, that's exactly the answer that I was looking for, by the way, <laughs> like when I asked you, because I actually, I had like a few questions, but you kind of answered all of those in that group. So that's perfect. Nice. Uh, I love the triangle. I actually learned that from you as well, from following, like, uh, it's, it's not necessarily like my rule that I always apply, but I love, you know, always looking at that as well just you know to make sure so that that's awesome so i have a question for you actually i just thought of that right now but so your focus is on these dividend growth stocks but i'm sure you you see all the time that debate like online about dividends non-dividends and stuff do you own any stocks that exhibit these characteristics but that don't pay a dividend do you own like any or not at all uh that's a pretty good question actually i'm gonna i'm gonna Take a moment to talk about the debate first, because I okay, found it very sure. interesting and I got into yes. a Twitter fight not too long ago. And <laughs> okay, that's fascinating. Yes. Because there are a lot of advisors and other investors, but mostly advisors are very yeah. vocal about that, that dividend growth investing is not really a strategy or it's completely irrelevant. And their point is that the dividend growth is a symptom of a company that is, is exposed to the five factors that will explain most of total return on the market. So the five factors are based on academic studies and they're true. And we're talking about momentum, value, uh, volatility. Uh, there's like two others. But the point here is if you have those great companies basically exposed to those set, to those factors, they will likely outperform other stocks. But my rationality is if I find a dividend grower that shows a strong dividend triangle, well, technically, this business is also exposed to those five factors and will eventually outperform the rest of the market. And this is why we see most of the time when we see graphs and studies about dividend growers and initiators, they tend to do that. They outperform the market and they do it with less volatility. So in other words, more money in my pockets with less headaches, kind of like that. But they just like people that focuses on the five factors, they see the dividend growth as a same symptoms. I see it as a result, as a, a, a confirmation that I am looking at a right business. Now, most of my portfolio is focused on that, but I've made a few exceptions throughout the years. Um, one exception I did, and I still have a position in that, is I hold shares of Amazon. Mm. And the reason yeah. why I have Amazon in my portfolio is in 2016, I did a deep dive into Walmart and another deep dive into Target. And then I realized, okay, so who's going to dominate the online like shopping place eventually. And I thought, well, Amazon is a lot stronger back then. And I saw Walmart as a strong number two and I didn't see any interest into Target. So my purchase of Amazon was more of a, I don't know, like a way to say, I don't, I'm not in love. I, I don't really like Target. 
especially because back then they failed it to come in Canada. So I was yeah. like, okay, so where's the growth vector here? They're like confined in the US. They have proven that they're not able to grow outside of their own market, which is not something that I like. And then Walmart, I see it as a strong number two in the uh, in the e-commerce, which makes sense, but I still saw Amazon as a, a better uh, better play on the uh, on the e-commerce. So that was like the investment thesis there. And the other one that I added to my portfolio not too long ago, and it was after like five years of like just seeing this company on my radar all the time, but it was missing one leg of the dividend triangle. So it's a business showing incredible revenue growth, incredible earnings growth, actually low debt, a lot of cash flow generation, a growth by acquisition company, with a yield of 0.25, which- I know which one that is. Yeah, yeah for sure. Right? Yes. <laughs> so it's Constellation Software, yeah. ticker CSU.TO. And, and the reason why I've, I've waited so long was not the 0.25, but rather the fact that it's kind of like, they started to pay a dividend one year, and I have the feeling that they just forgot that line in 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 the in the board's meeting. Yeah, and somebody much. just like click on approve every time they meet up, and they just forgot to know to read it because it doesn't make any sense to pay that such a small dividend. Never been increased, so it was just like there to be there. But the thing is that business replicates everything that a dividend grower should be. The only difference, and this is coming back to a lot of people thinking dividend is free money or magic money, which is not, is Finance 101, if a business has money in its bank account and find ways to generate value. So either to invest in research and development, either to do like acquisition, spending, marketing, like any kind of projects. But if they're just saying, you know what, we have $50 million in our bank account right now and we can create more value with it. Well, I don't want that business to send that money back to me as a shareholder. I want them to reinvest and try to compound that impact over a long term. And Constellation Software as a pipeline of like potential acquisition, like over 40,000 businesses. That is just wow. yeah. ridiculous. Crazy. And, and yeah, and th the reason why they are able to do that is they focus on very, very small businesses. So their market cap is like over 40 billion or like close to $50 billion. And they buy companies that generates like five to $10 million in revenue, like, like very, very small deals, but within like specific verticals in the software business where they can use their expertise, they keep the management in place and they just supercharge everything. So they just go into your office and you're like, okay, newcomer, we're going to take a look at how you do your business. And then we're going to give you our secret playbook and you're going to improve everything in your business and you're just going to be richer. So people are just like, yeah, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And this is how they are able to do that. And this is the reason why I decided to add it in my portfolio, even though, as I said, some people will say you're not a dividend guy anymore, but uh, I'm somewhat focused on the dividend growth. So that counts. But yeah, those are two, two exceptions. But most of the yeah. time, I really make a point to not... Um, go outside of my strategy more than like five to 10% of my portfolio. Cause eventually 
one day I may wake up with 35% of my portfolio that is not in line with my strategy. And I call that the, the garage door syndrome where you like in spring, you open your garage door, you look into it and you're just like, Oh my God, what happened with that mess? I was sure that everything was in order. Like who put that there? Like, you know, like small elves or something. But right. <laughs> that, and then you just look yeah. at it and say, you know what? I don't, I don't feel like dealing with this. I have like 50 stocks in my portfolio. I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to take a walk and ignore the problem. So yeah. I don't want my portfolio to grow this way. So I always make sure that I keep a small number of position around like 30, 35, never more than that. And that most of them, like 90% of them are focused on dividend growth, because if not, I'm just losing myself. And I, if you don't have a strategy, because there's a lot of strategy that works, but if you're trying to go from one place to another all the time, I think this is where a lot of investors are failing and, and eventually lose money because they lose sight of why they invest and how they should invest to get to reach their investment goals. Love that. Uh, everything you said, you know, uh, awesome and, and totally agree, I think. So basically, you're the mostly dividend guy. Let's, let's go. <laughs> yeah, way. we could um, say that. <laughs> but, uh, but going back to Constellation, because I've actually never spoken about this company on this podcast and I've never had a guest talk about it. I love them. I used to own it. And unfortunately, I sold. Really? I, I owned it under $2,000. I just have one share. And I sold. I think I got scared because I was like markets were tanking. And I was like, let me just reallocate to something that I, I, I understand better. But I mean, Mark Leonard, we have to talk about him for a second because of all the CEOs, I find like people sometimes they buy, if it's let's say a multi-generational company like Royal Bank, the CEO, I don't want to say he doesn't matter, but it's kind of like an institution, you know? Mm -hmm. Constellation is one of those companies where it's basically made in the shape of the CEO, a bit like Brookfield and Bruce Flatt. So yeah. I love Mark, like I don't even own Constellation anymore, but I still love to like read his letters and stuff. Have you read his letters? They're so good. So yeah, and actually, I got I got a chance to see him as a in a conference, and oh that God. was that was crazy. Actually, it went out from from um, Twitter. I I'm just gonna take a look here. I'm gonna like pull out his Twitter feed. Wow, I didn't even know he had a Twitter. No, not him. But oh, okay, okay. So it's Seiji. Um, so his Twitter feed is Seiji Zero PP Three L. Maybe you know him. But anyways, long story short, he's a big, big, big fan of Constellation Software. And if if you want to learn more about it, and you're listening to this podcast, go on Twitter, start following this guy, and he posts everything about them. So one day you reach out to me and then he said, yeah, there's a conference in Toronto and Mark Leonard will be there. And that conference, it was wow. like a tech, tech conference, like a full day. And it was hosted by National Bank. So he oh, asked me, like, course. can you use your connection to get some tickets? And I'm like, wow, that sounds like a pretty cool thing. So I still know a lot of people there because I worked 13 years at National Bank. So I eventually found my tickets to get there, took a plane like for a one day. And that was just amazing i had like a, like a lot of fun over the conference and it was like a lot of technology stocks like open text that was talking oh, nice. there yeah as well and then the uh the major part of that conference was the end keynote like one hour with more mark leonard and he wow. just impressed me by the way he answers the question but in a sense that he he seemed you know it's like a live event but at the same time he seems to be taking like 10 minutes in his mind, take a pause, think about it and go back with such a nice answer mm -hmm. or asking you a question you didn't even like figure it out. But all of that 
it, it, it took like 10 seconds, but like you and me would have taken 10 minutes to think about that. <laughs> yeah. And I was yeah. like, dude, this guy is like way ahead of us. Wow. And, and yeah, so I was like, I, I found that very, very interesting, very inspiring. And yeah. it was cool because there was a, like a, a few, um, students from a university in Toronto that were asked to ask questions. And then, and then one, one girl asked him a question and then he's like, where's that question's coming from? And she's like, well, we received like a list of question from national bank to ask. And he's like, yeah, okay. Skip that. What do you want to learn from me instead? Oh, and I was okay. like, wow, the guy's like Love super that. down to hurt, like very trying to make a connection with yep. people as well. So definitely a yeah. uh, very, very smart man. Um, always you. trying to think about what's best for the business and trying not to overhype the market around the business. So that's why he's like super um, quiet and and like doesn't come out very often. Because I think that if he did, if he was like more exuberant, like, like a guy like Elon Musk or Steve yeah. Jobs, probably that his company would trade at like a hundred times the earnings. It's already like quite expensive in yeah, terms of like the ratio, but now, right? yeah, but it yeah. would be like even worse. Because I agree. It would create a huge hype and he doesn't want that because he wants to make sure that the, the person working at Constellation Software that receives shares will have a value out of it. So just the fact that he thinks a lot more about the future than the actual like quarterly results it's it's very refreshing. Yeah, yeah. I no, I think in terms of integrity, he's probably the CEO like the t the top example mm -hmm. I can think of. And uh, that's really important for everyone listening like making sure that management is aligned with shareholders that they're not going to like take a 10 million dollar salary, wreck the company and run away because that happens sometimes, but he's the opposite of that. I actually saw something this morning, a tweet about him and it was an, a snippet from one of his letters where he said he's asked the board to not give him any salary anymore. Now his only money is the shares that he has yeah. and he lives off of that. So what more alignment can we ever want? This is literally, this is the maximum ever. So he's great. But anyway, I want to um, pivot to another topic now. Uh, so I actually listened to your episode this morning, the, the moose on the bank earnings. And I oh, yeah, quickly, the moose yeah, on the loose, yeah. Great episode. I <laughs> uh, highly recommend everyone listening to, to listen to that podcast too. But uh, so basically, yeah, you did a, a quick review of the earnings. Broadly, they weren't that great, kind of as expected, though. Mm -hmm. you know, we Obviously, you know, the macro environment is unstable and the, the PCLs are up. So that's fine. But uh, I, I recall you mentioning, you know, you have a kind of slightly pessimistic outlook, let's say for the rest of the year and perhaps for 2024, you feel like it, it may still be a little shaky and worse before it gets better. I'm just curious about how much worse do you think it would get? Do you foresee some kind of like generational opportunity, kind of like COVID when everything literally fell 50% or do you see more kind of a moderate decline? And also, so second question on top of that, are you thinking of buying more or waiting or what are you doing? Um, yeah. So in terms of what I see in my crystal ball, uh, the thing is I've been expecting a recession for like a good nine months now. Like last summer I was like, yeah, we're definitely going to get that recession because numbers cannot go that high forever. But there we are right now in a fascinating moment because usually when you have interest rate rising like this, it should put enough pressure on businesses so they should eventually start laying off people and trying to restructure because it's like way too much for them. So it happens a little bit, but not 
that much. And one thing that make it so fascinating and different is the demographic. We have so many people retiring right now that even if companies are laying off people, they're actually just sending people to retirement, but they, they still have a shortage of, of employees because there's not enough young guys coming into the office or coming into work. And, and that creates like a, a, a low unemployment rate that will remain the same, which usually what we have when interest rate increases, unemployment rate should increase at one point and inflation will go down. So now, I think that we may live into a world where inflation will be between three and 5% for a few years. And, and the fact that higher interest rate has a lagging effect on the economy, so it's gonna take a longer time. So if you if you bought your house like two years ago, you're not gonna feel higher interest rate for like another three years until you renew your mortgage, if you're on a fixed mortgage of like four or five years. So you're not going to see anything there, but in five years from now, if you're if you didn't get enough promotions, well, chances are you're going to struggle to pay that new mortgage rate. But that's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen in a few years. So there's a big lagging impact. And and I was looking at a lot of REITs because they have been like going down for for almost a year now. But the problem is there. You look at their financials and they look all good or stable, but a lot of them, like office REITs, for example, a lot of companies, they can't afford to pay the rents right now. So they're just going to keep up their leases until they renew. And then they're going to say, well, we used to have like five floors and we're going to drop it down to two. But yeah. in the meantime, you don't see that impact because the REIT is getting paid right now. And they're saying, yeah, we're like 90% occupied. We're getting our rent paid. It's all good. But upon the renewal, this is where it's going to start to fall off. So that's why I'm expecting the rest of 23 to not be a great year and potentially 24. Now, how it's going to impact the market, it's, it's a different thing in a sense that we're not having an amazing year in 23. 22 was not a good one either. Like like a lot of investors lost like double digit. This year is like pretty much like for like maybe what what we're up like five, six percent. If you're yeah. exposed to the tech sector, it's a little bit better. If not, it's not that great. So maybe we're going to have in in another another drop. That could be interesting, but I don't necessarily think we're going to have like a huge crash coming up. It's always possible, but I, I'm not a big fan of trying to time the market and trying to, to guess what's going to come. It's just more to manage my own expectations. So I didn't expect much from the bank. And I just like yesterday, my episode yesterday was saying, you know what, this morning I'm going to review uh, like the big five. And I expect a lot of like higher provision for credit losses, that is going to impact earnings, and I don't expect many good news, which is pretty much what's happening. Yeah. Well, you know what? Next quarter will be the same, and likely the next quarter after that as well, because the economy is like a very slow boat to turn. So it's slowly going into one direction until it doesn't, and then it's slowly going back, but it takes several quarters before you can see the real impact. Now with my portfolio, well, it's pretty simple. I'm always 100% invested. So it's, it allows me not to have that dilemma. I mean, when the market is up, I'm happy because I'm 100% invested. And when the market is down, I just focus on my dividend growth payments, where I see just those dividends increase every year. 
because I'm also invest all the time. And, and here's the thing that is quite interesting. In 2017, when I quit my job at the bank, I received the value of my pension plan. So I had the, the option of either um, leave it there or invest it on my own into a locked-in retirement account, so a Lira account where I cannot add capital. And this is what I report on my on my blog monthly is the result of this account because I cannot I cannot cheat my way into like grow this portfolio by adding more capital. It is like I receive one hundred and eight thousand dollars. Well, that's what I have, I cannot add a single dollar more. So it's only capital gains plus dividend dividend being reinvested. And in 2017, I received a check in September. That was like all-time high market. Like everybody was like, you know what? It's going to drop. You should wait. Da, da, da. I mean, between, between September and December, I invested all my money. After one month, I had like 75% of my account that was already invested. And the reason why I took three months to complete the portfolio is because I had to work on DSR a lot more because I was looking to generate some income uh, when I came back. Uh, but yeah, so I decided to invest it all at that point. Funny stuff is 2018 was a bad year on the market. And then 2020, we had another very bad year, like especially the first part when yeah. COVID hit. At no time, I saw $108,000 or less in my account. Wow. It, it dropped It dropped down to like 125 at one point, yeah. but it never went to the original value, even though I invested when the market was at its all-time high. That technical analysis suggested the big, um, I'd say the Edinburgh Omen. So all when all technical analysis, our science signals are combined together, telling you a crash is coming. That was the year in 2017. And 2018, from July to December, the market dropped by roughly 20%, both on Canadian and US market. But then again, kind of funny thing is, if you had sold in 2018 and say, yeah, I knew it was coming, well, nobody knows that, but now you have to go back in time. And the best timing to invest at that time was on Boxing Day. Kind of ironic, right? Because when the market is down, we always say that there's a bargain. But it was like December 26, you would have to wake up, try not like try to be sober from Christmas, <laughs> yeah. open your computer and start investing. Because if you've missed like the first month between December 26 and January 26 of 2019, the market was already up by more than 10% in those 30 days. And it was wow. already boom, going back up for an amazing year 2019, which nobody forecasted. So if you tried to time the market there, well, you're probably waiting and sitting there, not knowing what to do. So instead of having this dilemma all the time, I rather focus on my strategy and being um confident about the stocks I have in my portfolio at all time. And whenever I have I have money to invest, I invested right away. I have like a buy list on the side. I have like stocks. Obviously, running a membership about dividend stocks helps to know which kind of a company I would like to add to my portfolio at any time. Okay. Uh, so I have always my buy list on on the side. So whenever there's a, there's money coming in, I decide to invest. But Fully honest, over the past five years, I've mostly reinvested all my money into my business to make it grow, to reinvest in the technology, to offer like better services to my members. I find it's a better way for me right now to invest in my business instead of building a larger portfolio, which is 
still already more than enough to cover for my retirement needs if like that's my plan c kind of type of thing so if i if i want to retire at 60 65 i'll have more than a million dollar at that point so it's all good like that part is secured now i can focus on doing something else that is a lot more exciting yeah totally thank you for sharing all, all these like details that's that's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff and I, I love it. I love that strategy too. I'm also 100% invested. Although for me, I guess the stakes are a bit lower at this point because I'm still, you know, my portfolio size is, is a bit less than you. And uh, I also have a, a bit of probably a longer time horizon for, for now. But uh, yeah, that, that's awesome. Mike, you are an outspoken advocate of one bank in particular. The same way a lot of people know me now on Twitter as the Brookfield guy, you are the national bank guy. Now, yeah. you know, on, on this uh, on this podcast, like I said, I, I like to talk about, you know, investing and returns and stuff like that. But honestly, what animates me the most is literally understanding the business itself. Mm -hmm. So National Bank has outperformed all the banks. It's true. You know, it's unfortunately I don't own it, but I, I have to give credit where it's due. It's done great. But I would like to know now, kind of do a bit of a deep dive. And could you explain to us what makes it stand out? What is what is it about their strategy that has made them really generate so much better returns than everyone else. Yeah, and, and I have to highlight at first to be fair that National Bank today is not National Bank in the 90s. Actually, funny, funny fact, in the 90s, they had to cut their dividend at one point. So they were, Ooh. yeah, they were like pretty much uh, similar to Laurentian Bank at this oh, point really? where they were like all focused on Quebec. And this is one of the reason a lot of investors tend to ignore National Bank. First, they're a lot smaller. And the second thing is back then, most of their exposure to the bank was just in one province. And even there, I can't remember the year, I think it was like 94, 95, we got that referendum because some people wanted to separate from this beautiful country, which I don't get, even though I'm, 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 I'm from Quebec. But anyways, so there was also that fear of like political uncertainty. So, you know, well, technically from a, an economic point of view, not the best move to have all your money invested in a province that would like maybe one day to become a country but not necessarily having a clear plan on yeah. the economic side um so anyway so that was like the story in the 90s but then the banks started to evolve and what it is today it is still a small bank compared to the big five but they're a lot more flexible and agile so that means a few years ago they decided and this is when i well actually when i started in 2003 when i started working with them they uh they started to expand their horizon but in a different way they knew they couldn't really compete in other provinces maybe on ontario it's a little bit it's okay but on western canada very difficult for them to compete in opening branches and just be side by side with, with BMO or Royal Bank or TD. So instead they started to do um, partnerships. So it started with, with PowerCorp where they said, you know what, you're an investing and insurance company and we're gonna deal with all the credit. So then if you wanna do an investment loan at Investors Group, it was like very, very popular at that time. But the thing is, if you make a deal with the banker at the branch next door and that banker leaves, the new guy that comes in sees like a huge portfolio of investments 
and a lot like a lot of loans i mean and no investment and they're just like yeah i'm gonna call those clients and then ask them to transfer over the investment so that was like a non-compete clause and they started to expand this way to have like more credit but outside of quebec without having to open branch i mean we had like one branch like one year i i generated for like more than 250 million dollars in one product only that was just crazy that was like that grew like there's no tomorrow but then they didn't stop there they decided to expand also in capital markets so they are very good they're very big at exchanging like you know there's always the etf and the underlying but then you have to do that market making to enable to make sure that everything is liquid so if you want to buy the etf somebody else as like for example like the banks that cover the etf or the tsx so the 60 companies so they're doing a lot of market making so the capital market started to grow over years over years and it became a, a big part of their business after that they decided to they looked at what bmo did with uh aris bank back back in the day when they made that purchase they went into private wealth and they saw and they thought you know what we may not be that big to open a branch next door but we can serve rich clients so they started private banking 1859 this is where i ended up for the last five years of my uh, of my career at national bank and back then i don't know the numbers today because i don't have a, a, that access anymore but back then we were the top four with assets under management in private banking in canada so wow. a small bank but having like a very large pie a part of that pie which is definitely a lot more profitable than opening accounts for students and and no arms to students but i mean if you it's can bring <laughs> like a client that has five million dollars in, in in investment plus he has a business that needs like 15 million dollars in loans well this is the type like you get one client and you make up for like a hundred more that yeah. is just an average person like working with a paycheck. Well, then they focus on the wealthiest and that paid off. So that was another way to like expand and diversify because that that is like one major difference between Canadian banks and regional banks in the U.S. is most regional banks in the U.S., what they do is really classic savings and loans activities. So they open banks accounts, they offer you GICs, they offer you a few investment, but most of it is just, do you want a mortgage? Uh, we got a deposit account and there you go. You got savings and loans, commercial and personal, and that's it. In Canada, we have this, plus we have wealth management, we have capital market, we have insurance. So they expand this way. And most recently, they decided to go international. So they made an acquisition in Cambodia. They started small, um, ABBA Bank, a few years ago, and they eventually uh, got like an important stake in that bank. And now they own it completely. Which is interesting is that they have a similar business model versus the one in Quebec, where they are a very strong bank in a very small region so that enables them to use their strength and their expertise in quebec and export that into another country which so far is doing great they also uh, made an acquisition of Creditgy, which is a credit specialist in um in atlanta in the us 
again, doing well so far. Not sure how it's going to go out in the next coming quarters, considering the uh, the interest rate rising and the pressure on consumers. But so far, specialty credit paid off well, and and it's really their ability to diversify. They're like like my two favorite banks are National Bank and Royal Bank for the same reason is their diversification. 50% of their revenue is not coming from classic savings and loans, banking activities. It's all related to capital market insurance, uh, wealth uh, management, and same thing for Royal Bank. Obviously, Royal Bank is a little bit bigger, but that's that's how they've been able to um, grow their dividend as like one of the top dividend grower among Canadian banks and showing such a great growth trajectory over the past 20 years. And, and I have to say, they have a pretty good way, and it's probably because of their business model. As you mentioned uh, earlier, it's not dependent to the CEO, but they've made great transitions so far. So I came in, um, I've seen like three CEOs so far in my history and like a lot of stability, of course. Mm. And, and that transition every year, every time that they change CEO, I mean... Mr. Vachon has been there for a while now. It's Mr. Ferreira. Uh, but they they know how to make that transition super smooth. And they've never been in a crisis for a while. So that helped too. But yeah, it's really their diversification. The fact that they're smaller, they're flying under the radar. And now they're getting a little bit more credit. Uh, hopefully I've helped to that. Yes. Oh, you have. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Every time I see a post on National Bank, I see someone tags you or you're the one who made the post. <laughs> so yeah, you've it definitely- It a running joke now. Helped. It's kind of funny. <laughs> no, but it's great. I mean, to, to be honest though, I, I think, you know, trumpeting a stock all the time, if it's literally the best bank, because like numbers don't lie, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever I post about about Scotiabank. Now I have people like, you know, tagging me saying numbers don't lie. Look at National Bank. It's like, yes, I know. <laughs> so no, that's great. But thank you for the breakdown. So I guess to summarize what you're saying is firstly diversification, but also smart diversification in yeah. that when they do diversify, it's to go towards stuff that's maybe less effort, but also higher margins and more profit. Definitely. Rather than some of the other ones that just try to do everything with very low margins and it's not even good, you know what I mean? So yeah, that's that's a good way and, to. And when you look when you look at CIBC, for example, they they kind of like lag of strategy in that mm -hmm. regards compared to the other big five, and they they were late on a lot of things. So they're doing a little bit of everything, like you said. But this is one of the reasons why CIBC is a lot more like a deluxe bond, like a stock that will have a hard time to show great stock appreciation, but they will continue to pay their dividend. It's it's a cash money making machine. That's not a problem, but still it's going to be a bit slower than others. So that's why it trades at a discount. It seems to be a good deal, but in fact, it's just because they're not as performant as the other. And one of the reason is the fact that they have not been able to find a clear strategy. See, like TD focuses on the US, Royal Bank is well diversified. BMO is a lot more about wealth management and capital markets. So they have like all their like Scotiabank, even though it doesn't work that well so far, but they have a clear line of strategy. Yeah, they are in the trying. International market. So sometimes I'd rather invest in a business that is clear about their intention. Yeah. And sometimes they're wrong and that's fine. And it makes it also easier to say, okay, so if they're wrong, I can change my investment thesis or I can just let go of that stock because they were clear and they missed it, but at least you knew where they were going and why they were doing it. So yeah. sometimes you see businesses and they're just like, 
Yeah, that strategy is not like this is one of the reasons why I hate Laurentian Bank as much as I love National Bank is Laurentian Bank <laughs> is like shifting from one strategy to another every three years. Wow. And, and I yeah. mean, they got the results that that switching strategy. It's not just good for investors, you know, like for investors, you're better off sticking to your strategy all the time, regardless of what it is, but at least you know where you're going and why you're doing it. Yeah. Well, Laurentian Bank just try to pick up like any low-hanging fruits and get lost along the way. Yeah, makes sense. What do you think about Canadian Western Bank? Have you ever uh, like invested in that or looked at them really? Yeah, actually, uh, full disclosure, it has a rating of sell at DSR. I don't okay. not not because I don't like the bank, but because yeah. I find that if the other big six, including national banks, are better than this one, why would you get there at one point to invest? That's so fair. one thing is they're a little bit more as a regional bank, a little bit more of a classic model where it's more about savings and loans. I know that they're doing wealth management, but it's a little bit more limited. They're trying to expand in Ontario, but Overall, and even though it's kind of interesting because they, they show a very long streak of dividend growth, but the yield is lower, the dividend growth is usually smaller as well, and their dependence on one province economy, as same thing as what that was the problem of National Bank back in the day, I don't think it's a good thing. Even though Alberta is a flourishing province, I don't think it's enough for them to to battle against the big five in in those markets and and the fact their lack of diversification is one thing that i'm not interested in so it's not a bad business it's just that there are so many better businesses in the same industry i don't see the the point of investing in this one i mean similar to we could debate on 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 investing in intel or ibm when you can invest in in yeah. broadcom apple microsoft yeah, texas yeah, yeah. instruments uh qualcomm uh you have like so many amazing tech stocks why would you pick one that the is slowing ones. down and fighting a hard time to grow right yeah and, no, and that's, that's you very do not have like okay. 10 stocks of each sector and if not just buy an etf and you'll be served yeah okay no that that makes sense thank you for sharing uh so we have a few minutes left and i want to uh, go over one last one so i actually went through your tweet because i remembered that you made that tweet and i had to look for it uh so you said atd just joined the triple digit return club in your portfolio, uh, and it's an excellent company. So firstly, congratulations for triple digit. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan actually also of ATD. I used to own it, though I also sold. I shouldn't have, but that's okay. So this is one of your conviction stocks. Can you explain, again, we're going to act as if it's a blank slate. Explain yeah. to people, how does a convenience store company do so well? It's one of the best performing stocks literally in Canada in terms of business returns, shareholder returns, dividend growth, everything. How did they do it? Who would have thought that opening a convenience store in Laval would end up in a multi-billion company, the second largest convenience store chain in the world? It's completely ridiculous. Crazy. So, Alimentation Couchetard, well, one, and it's kind of funny because I that was among my first bought, my, my first purchases in 2003, 2004, but I sold all my shares when no. I bought my house in 2006. So, oh, okay, yeah. 
and definitely my house didn't get that much in value versus what did. So instead of being part of my triple digit earner right now, they would have been in the, in the very selective four digit return wow. stocks, which I only have Apple there. But yeah. anyways, I mean, one day it may go back there, but in the meantime, a uh, very great performing stock. But the thing is, they used to grow a lot by acquisition. So they did that for several, several years, actually decades, where they, they applied the same, like the same recipe. And they just did that with, with buying gas stations from Total Energy this year. But it, it has been a while since they had bought anything else. But before that, their model was quite simple. They're, they were just looking for the right acquisition at the right price that they could easily integrate in their business and find a way to add more value into each convenience store. So most of the time, buying convenience store chain that was not optimized, so they knew already, similar to what Constellation Software does, mm -hmm. coming with their magic playbook, applying to the letter, and rinse and repeat all the time. So that worked out, and it's very interesting because you see management is very disciplined in their acquisition. Over the past three, four years, they went through a lot of opportunities where they just said no. I remember once it was the largest chain in Australia. Can't remember the name right now, but it's not it's not relevant. They went back and forth negotiating for the price and it was just before COVID, but the price was too high to just let it go. Just like, you know what? Okay. Not for us. We're going to pass. They did that again. Um, another another one, I think it was like Marathon Oil uh, or another chain in the U.S. where they let it go to 7-Eleven, which is the largest convenience store chain in the world. But again, it was just like very disciplined and they grew this way. But today, what I found fascinating is they now intend to grow their business, but roughly 35-40% of their growth will come from acquisition. The rest will come from organic growth. So they introduced loyalty program. They wanted to uh, introduce um, automatic uh, cashier. So like those smart mm -hmm. cashiers that you can go in, get out like touch, like don't have to touch anything. And one thing that isn't very interesting here is a lot of people are concerned about like electric vehicle becoming the norm eventually. That. Yeah. Yeah. And and that that is I'm not that worried, but it's still a threat. That is for sure. But what they did a few years ago is they implement, they, they made acquisition in Norway, which is the country with the highest um electric vehicle fleet. It's around like 14% of all their uh vehicles oh, are electric wow. back there. That's a lot. Yeah. And they still show growth opportunities. Like because the first thing is. 65% of their transaction does not include the sale of gasoline. It's just like convenience store sales. Mm -hmm. And they've been like, again, very, very good in selling tobacco products, selling uh, beers and stuff and snacks. So it's about the location. It's convenient, as the name says, but like people, they're just like go around in their neighborhood. They grab a pack of chip. They want like to have like a, a six pack of beer. They're going to stop at Kostar and they're going to go back home. Uh, like a few years, I went to Vietnam and for for like 30 days going from one city to another. And one thing that was common, I could find a Circle K pretty much everywhere. So Love every it. time I needed something, yeah. even if it was a small purchase, I always ended up in a Circle K. And, and this is how they've been able to be there everywhere. And even if 
you even if you have to charge your car on on the highway or something you're going to stop there but you're going to get stuck for a few minutes like 15 20 minutes well you're going to go into the convenience store you're going to buy stuff and so far their their experience in Norway is is very good and now they're expanding the experience buying more uh it's like almost it's 2000 or 3000 convenience stores um in Europe from total energies they're going to grow their experience across europe because the european market is a bit different than in north america where we have like long distance pretty much everywhere where we have to drive uh there you're going to walk a lot more you're not necessarily going to use your car so it's a lot more about the convenience store experience um instead they're introducing like fresh produce as well like like sandwiches and stuff like uh, on the healthier part so you want to like have like a healthy snack or lunch you'll be able to have to find that at kushta so they thought instead of just trying to grow by acquisition because there's also a limit of convenience store you can buy in the world That's especially true. at this size i mean they're with the, the acquisition of total energy i think they're going to be like at either 16 or 17,000 oh, convenience stores yeah. across the world that's like a that's huge amount a yeah. So at one point they have to find other ways to grow and so far they've been able to do it and and i mean let's let's be honest we're still going to have gasoline for a long while, even though we're going to stop selling new cars. I think it's going to be there for another like two decades, maybe. So they have plenty of time to turn I'm around. Even more than that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Wow. And I can also add for our, our listeners, for those who speak French, there's a great interview of the CEO. I think mm. his name is Alain Bouchard. Alain Bouchard, uh, yes. Yeah, he uh, on Radio-Canada. And that's a great interview where he... he talks about kind of the, the beginnings of that. But I was just like struck by him as a person, very humble guy, really nice dude too, and down to earth uh, and very passionate about yeah. the, the Even in the interview, what I found fascinating is the point where he goes into one of his convenience store and yeah, the and guy is like so passionate about yeah. everything that is there. He's like a kid in a oh, kid. Oh, a bag of crisps. Course. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Okay, Mike. Well, thank you so much for this breakdown and for this, this whole conversation. This was an absolute pleasure. There are so many other things I, I would have loved to talk about, but we'll do something like this again another time. Oh, yeah, we'll do <laughs> but, a sequel on my podcast and on yours. Exactly. Later, that's yes, for let, sure. <laughs> let's do that. But yeah, so thank you again so much. Uh, for everyone listening, please go follow him at The Dividend Guy on Twitter. Uh, you have a YouTube channel. You have a Spotify podcast. You have The Moose on the Loose. You have all these things. So I'm going to put all your links in the description. So everyone, Thank please you. follow Mike. And uh, yeah, it was awesome having you, man. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thanks. It has been a real treat. I mean, good way to spend my lunchtime today. Definitely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> awesome. Awesome.